0: The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ in his mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit christpres.org.
1: Good morning, everyone. Today's scripture reading is from Acts chapter 23 verses 12 through 35. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They, made, they went to the chief priests and elders and said, We have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now therefore you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you, as though you were going to determine his case more exactly and we are going to kill him before he comes near. Now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush, so he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell them. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul the prisoner called me and asked me to bring this young man to you, as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand, and going aside, asked him privately, What is it that you have to tell me? And he said, The Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow, as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them, for more than forty of their men are lying in ambush for him, who have bound themselves by an oath, neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now the ready, waiting for your consent, So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, tell no one that you have informed me of these things. Then he called two of the centurions and said, get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen and go as as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. As he wrote his letter to this effect, Claudius Lysias, to his excellency the governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. And desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing, deserving death or imprisonment. And it was when and it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the men. So I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. And on the next day, they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go with him on. When they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from. And when he learned he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Haran's praetorium. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ.
0: Thank you, Charlie, for reading that most intriguing passage of Scripture. Uh, I don't know if you noticed that, but uh, the word kill shows up four times. It's not the kind of text that you get excited when you say, like, oh, you're preaching from this text. So, um, well, text like today is a poignant and powerful reminder that we don't understand the will or the Word of God completely or exhaustively. Just as there are things that happen in our life, individually or collectively, ecclesially or nationally, that elude our grasp to understand, we don't understand it all, but God Surely does. Isaiah 45, verse 15, says of the God of Israel, Truly you are a God who hides himself, O God of Israel, the Savior. The Lord's presence does not mean the absence of problems and predicaments and pain. It simply means that the Lord is not only aware, but also is present in the middle of our predicaments, pain, and problems. He is furthermore, much more than that, through these things, transforming us into His own image. We often forget this, but the purpose of the Christian life, the purpose as to why you're sitting there and listening to uh, the liturgy of confession, singing together with these beautiful songs and a choir and praise team, and even reading of scripture and now, reading the, the uh, hearing the word of God interpreted, is so that we will have someone translate that for us. As our brother read that Psalm 27 in Hebrew, let's say you just heard it and there is no nothing on the screen that says you know Psalm 27. Then while those words are beautiful and evocative. But we wouldn't know what it means. You see what I mean? So the sermon time is a time for us to read the word and interpret it so that the people of God could be edified for the end purpose, the end game of becoming more and more like Christ in our life. As it says in Second Corinthians three, seventeen and eighteen, not the Lord is a spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all with unveiled faces contemplate or reflect the Lord's glory. We are being transformed into his image with ever increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. For Paul the Apostle, that is the very apex of the Christian's ascent to the Mount of Transfiguration. Starting with the transaction upon the cross as the touchstone of the identity remaking of the Christian. No matter what country you're from, no matter what cultural background, socioeconomic backgrounds, zip codes you may be from, one thing that brings us together is the transaction upon the cross and the empty tomb reunites us and reweaves our identity. It continues on with the transformation of the believer's life into the image of God in the power of the Holy Spirit and ultimate transfiguration of the universe as the end comes to the new beginning of the cosmos. So we see from today's text, we ask, what could this text mean? I, some of these texts are hard to see what the purpose is. Two, we let these texts be used as our liturgical and existential guides. At least as a preacher, uh, this text and wrestling with this text brought me humility, greater dependence on the Lord, and also freedom in this task. I don't have to explain everything to you adequately, though I will try. It is not about me. It is not up to me. And yet it is. I mean, so I couldn't just mail it in and say, hey, you read the text. Do you understand it? Good, let's pray, and then we'll have the Lord's Supper, the quickest sermon ever. It'll be like one minute, and some of you will probably sing hallelujah in Hebrew. I don't know, and that is in Hebrew, by the way. So I spent perhaps more time in prayer and wrestling with God than the time I had to actually sit down and write out the sermon partly because of the language of killing, but also because of what is going on in in the land, as we heard earlier about Israel and the Gaza Strip and all of that in the Middle East, but not just in the Middle East, but throughout our world. At the grammatical historical level of this text that we have read, we see the zeal, the word zeal um, kind of implied there and contained there. A group of more than 40 Jewish men vowing to abstain from food until they kill Paul. We also see this conspiracy plot leaking to Paul's sister. Did you know that? Paul's sister, through her son, ultimately reaching the centurion who then told the Roman commander, a.k.a. the tribune. Then we read a letter from Claudius Lysias, who is the tribune himself, who is called Achillearchos, meaning a military officer with about 1,000 men under his charge. He writes a letter to Felix. Here we also see the zeal of a Roman official, to not let anything disturb the emerging and established Pax Romana, peace of Rome. And we also see the zeal of the Roman citizen whose ultimate citizenship was in heaven, the detained Christian named Paul of Cilicia. Zeal, Z-E-A-L. What comes to your mind when you think about the word zeal? For me, one of the things that I think about when I think about zeal is I'm really zealous about golf. I'm not a good golfer, mind you. I Actually, I'm the kind of golfer who just goes to the, you know, somebody invites me to come and play. I just show up without just going to the driving range, and I usually use a mulligan in the first hole, and I just play. I just love playing, but my zeal for golf is not based upon years of experience or knowledge. You know, so for about eight years of my life, my wife and I and our son lived on the Ingram Commons on Vanderbilt's campus. And uh, one year, I had uh, the, the uh, pleasure and privilege of living with a student who uh, was on the women's golf team at Vanderbilt. And that's an SEC team, and that's a very good team. And she said, oh, Dr. Lima, I heard that you're a golfer. I said, uh, yeah, sort of. She goes, well, love to play with you if you want to. I said, oh, okay. And so uh, we <laughs> played one round of golf at the uh, Legends Golf Course, which is not an easy course. And then I thought it'll be just me and this student, but she brought two of our teammates one of whom ended up playing for a short while on the LPGA tour. So I just showed up, I didn't go to the driving range, I said, let's play. And then it became palpably clear to me and to them that there is a huge gulf right? That they were, you know, shooting like one over, two over. I was about 20 over by the fourth hole or fifth hole. And it was embarrassing. But you know what else? When you're actually, when your zeal is not matched by knowledge or experience, you get even more nervous when people are watching you. And, you know, and and I was trying to putt and I just, everything was a mess except for the fact that I got to enjoy a great round with, you know, students who, who are at Vanderbilt. And, but the word zeal, when I think about the word zeal, I'm zealous about golf. I played around yesterday. It was scores about the same, but I didn't care. It was a beautiful autumn day. Got to be with some friends. And so I'm the kind of golfer that you want to invite, right? Because you would always feel great about your game because here's a guy who's going to be much worse off than you are. All right. Anyway, so for the rest of our time, we want to talk about zeal. We want to talk about zeal that may not have been kind of based upon knowledge. And we'll consider these three points throughout our time together. See, zeal alone can't get you there, and wherever there is. First point is, zeal alone can't get you there, the Jewish version. The second point is, that zeal alone can't get you there, the Roman version. And third point is, that zeal alone can't get you there, the Christian version. Ready? All right, let's go. The first point is, that zeal alone can't get you there, the Jewish version. We see that in verses 12 through 21. Here is a really a powerful conspiracy plotted. Imagine you have a 40 men self-selected for one singular aim, to assassinate someone. Their all-consuming zeal will not rest until this man, in this case, Paul Saul of Tarsus, a Pharisee, who began to spout and spread some dangerous heresy about the Messiah coming from Nazareth. They were determined that we want to actually, because in so doing, we're actually doing God a great service to God. I don't want you to mistake this. They were not merely bloodthirsty men, far from it. They really believed that in so doing, they were doing service to God in the same way. That Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus Damascus was believing that he was doing the same thing. They were 100% convinced that they were right. And that the God of Israel was on their side also. How do you know that? They even enlisted the help of the highest earthly court of divine arbitration, called the Sanhedrin, comprised of the chief priests and the elders. The latter entity saw its reason for existence as the maintaining and sustaining of the law of Yahweh, the God of Israel. The other 40-plus men were burning with the zeal to keep the same law pure and uncontaminated, and they were 100% convinced that Paul, of, Paul or Saul was guilty of it, thus must be punished by killing him. Zeal alone cannot get these men to their desired end. Let me ask you, do you think that these men pondered, hmm, what if we were misguided or misdirected or just plain wrong? Let me illustrate it this way. So I received hundreds of books from me to review and assess since I began teaching full-time in year 2001, first at Gordon-Conwell Seminary in Boston, and since 2006, right here at Vanderbilt University. And innumerable others have recommended books to me, ranging from middle school students as CPA, or that one girl say, you should read this book, and from single moms, from the vendors that are contributor to professors from Oxford and Yale, and what have you. But one very memorable book I'd like to talk about here was recommended to me by a friend of mine who used to be an RUF minister in the West Coast, now is directing the Southeast region uh, of RUF uh, right now, Britton Wood. He told me that I should really read Chuck Klosterman's book called But What If We Were Wrong? Thinking About the Present as If It Were the Past. The title is really, really kind of catchy, and the book design is even cheekier. It says, but what if we were wrong thinking about the present as if we were the past, published by Penguin in 2016. Klosterman's thesis is as simple as it is profound. Not having the perfect vision of hindsight, we need more epistemic or intellectual humility to say, uh, but what if we are wrong And Klosterman talks about examples from the self-evident theories of Ptolemy who taught that the earth was the center of the universe. We know that's not the case anymore to political theories of Aristotle who taught that some groups of people are naturally superior to others and that we don't believe anymore to ideas that are attributed to divine causality when thunder and lightning struck. People don't say, oh, thunder and lightning struck, it must be God, you know, God must be angry. No, that's not what we believe anymore. So what if we were wrong Thinking about the present as if it were the past. These 40 plus men could never envision that they might be misguided or wrong because they had not realized that zeal alone simply couldn't get them there. Think about Moses in Exodus chapter 2, who, in his zeal for his own people, especially when he saw them suffering in the cruel hands of the Egyptian masters, he killed one of them, he killed an Egyptian. That zeal did not get Moses to where he wanted to go. He was misguided and ended up being wrong about the method of deliverance for his own beloved people. Think also about Elijah. We read about him in 1 Kings chapter 19, verses 13 through 18, where he, after defeating the furious zeal of the prophets of Baal, heard the even more furious threat of Jezebel, the queen, so he took off, he escaped. Perhaps blinded by his own fear and self-defined sense of reality, we find these words in verse 13 of chapter 19 of 1 Kings. The Lord asks Elijah, what are you doing here, Elijah? And this is what he says. said, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. Now, the Lord had to say, wait, 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 no, that's not true. There are actually 7,000 people who have not bowed their knees to Baal. Elijah has zeal for the Lord God Almighty, as he says, but his zeal was not informed by a true knowledge of the character of God. So that Elijah grossly underestimates his own significance, he grossly overestimates his own significance as he underestimates the Lord's own strength. We often do that. Unless you really come to know the Lord well, we tend to grossly overestimate our own significance and by underestimating the Lord's own strength. These men we read about are no different from Moses or Elijah, and we're going to see about Moses and Elijah later on at the end of the sermon. They were no different from Saul of Tarsus when he was breathing murderous threats against the followers of Jesus of Nazareth about whom some had said he was the one Moses had written about and that the prophets had foretold. That takes me to the second point. Zeal alone can get you there, the Roman version. We find that in verses 22 to 35. The Roman Empire was mightiest empire known to humankind at that time, and uh, perhaps you know, bypassing and surpassing that of the Assyrian Empire, Babylonian Empire, subsequent to uh, uh, the to Roman Empire, Mongolian Empire, and all of that, the Roman Empire probably is one of the best known and most lasting known uh, empire that humankind had put together. And so the pride of the Roman Empire is understandably a lot, legion indeed. Just to name a few, their political structure led by the Senate and the Emperor, their kind of bicameral check and balance system created no kind of tyrannical structure nor was it always kind of in that political instability. Their civil engineering marvels such as the Roman aqueducts or the Colosseums, aqueduct that kind of led water into different disparate parts of the empire so that you will have potable or drinking water available. Their legal codes to subdue and govern their vast territory. Once you bring them to submission by Roman military might, they often allow surprising degree of autonomy to their subjugated people, including those from Israel. But we will also see in today's text that the Roman zeal for Pax Romana, the enduring, perhaps even eternal, desire for peace and tranquility through his military might, political savvy and engineering marvels, and jurisprudential excellence simply won't get them there. I want you to pay attention to these words. Verses 22 to 24. I find that absolutely fascinating. Um, So that's we're going to show that slide in just a little bit, but I want you to look at verses 23 and 24 of our text today. Here, I find the language, so the the, uh, uh, Claudius Lysias, this is what he says. He called two of his centurions and ordered them, and watch this. Listen to this. Get a detachment of how many soldiers? 200 soldiers, and how many horsemen? 70 horsemen, and how many spearmen? 200. Did you hear that? So, okay, we're going to transport a prisoner. We're going to transport, and this is what it is. Transporting of a prisoner, how many men do we need? We have at, right now 470 people, right? 470 people. 200 spearmen, 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen in order to c- carry and you know, kind of make sure that one prisoner is going to be brought to safety. 470 people versus 40 people. Why all of this kind of overmatching of numbers? You see, Rome was almost to a degree of being freaked out about their own safety and tranquility and and political kind of, you know, uh, stability. They were wanting to make sure that they were kind of zealous about their empire security, their empire stability. They were going to spend 470 people and then give Paul, this prisoner, horses for Paul too. I find this absolutely hilarious as well as marvelous. That the Romans said, "Okay, we're gonna make, we're gonna show who is in charge. We're not gonna let any of the Jews, any of the Gentiles, any of whoever come in our way of protecting somebody and preserving our sense of peace and tranquility. Our nation, we're the best. We're gonna show who's boss." Underneath all of it, watch this: is there zeal to make sure that the Roman way is gonna be preserved, the Roman way that they had so believed in? Their jurisprudence, their political structure, their military might, their you know, civil engineering kind of marvels, all of these things they thought would actually bring about true and lasting peace and tranquility. You know what? That didn't happen. Look at verse 22. See, this Claudius tells a young boy who told him about the secret conspiracy plot to kill him. I find this also really hilarious. It says, hey, don't tell anyone you, por- you reported this to me. How do we know that? This was reported. And this was reported because someone told us about that. And then, not only just a few people, but now 2,000 years, more than 1 billion people have been, you know, let in on this kind of thinly veiled, thinly kept secret. So much for the Roman zeal you know, to keep things going their way and keep things hush-hush. We see that, that this um, Claudius wants to defend, uh, you know, he, he now not only has 470 men covering and protecting Paul in this you know, security, uh, the prisoner transfer, but he also writes a letter to his higher-up, Felix, and this is what it says, that that was the established method of governance, that they're always going to defer to the higher-ups, which is understandable. We also see that in verses 27 through 30 that Claudius presents the Jews as driven by passion and zeal. The way that he describes the, the, the Jewish people is like they're always kind of in a fits of rage and passion, but we, the Romans, we know better and we're much more advanced than they are. That their zeal is to keep things under their stability and control. And that, that, that their law Rome, a fair trial and justice for all, we got it. This is our zeal. We're going to be zealous to keep this. Yet we shall also see that the Rome's zeal for its own glory simply couldn't get them there. The irony of irony is this that Emperor Constantine around 325 kind of called together this uh, Council of Nicaea. He also sanctioned Christianity as a, a legitimate religion and eventually made Christianity the religion of the entire Roman Empire. And that is the real interesting kind of end of this irony, right? The end goal of the irony, the despised religion from the margins of the empire, See, if you're a Roman emperor, you didn't think that much about what's going on in Jerusalem. That was just kind of like, who cares? What's really happening is in Rome, right? That's where it's at. And and in the margins, you know, if you're living in, I don't know, New York City, do you think a lot about what's going on in I don't know, wherever I mention, I'm, somebody's going to be offended, so I'm going to hear, hear about it tomorrow. So let's say a, a cultural hinterlands, you think, okay, nobody cares about that region. Well, that's sort of like where this is. And Christianity grew up in that region and, and basically overturned and took over the empire. So that the, the zeal alone can get you there, the Roman version is where it's at. That leads me to my third and the final point. Zeal alone cannot get you there the Christian version, and we find that in verse 11. So let's see on on our screen this very pivotal text that wasn't read for us, but I think it'll be really important. I was preaching uh, from this text last Sunday on our Music Row congregation, and this, I think, was really a a kind of eye-opening verse to me because you may know the story of Paul. Paul had been, uh, he was on the road to Damascus to arrest and and to really put out the spread of this heresy called The Way, the, you know, the way of Nazareth, right? The way of Jesus of Nazareth. And he encounters this Jesus of Nazareth who had been resurrected, and he encounters, he encounters Jesus and is temporarily blinded, and then he's healed, and then he goes away for about three years into the desert in Arabia. And after that time period, he comes back and he becomes the most ardent defender of the way. So, no, I mean, understandably, some of the apostles are like, is this guy for real? Is that some kind of show? Because is he going to actually do that and arrest all of us? And there was an understandable fear about Paul, right? So Paul now is having to assuage people, and he's really led by the Holy Spirit, and he says, keep in step with the Holy Spirit of God, because in so doing, you will know who you are and whose you are. But so up to this point in Acts chapter 23, um, he doesn't know that he's headed to Rome. He knows that he's going to Jerusalem. Because I know the Holy Spirit has told me that I'm going to be going to Jerusalem and everywhere I go, there will be dangers and sufferings and all of these await me. But I know that I regard my life as nothing so that I can testify to the grace of God. So he says that to the Ephesian elders in chapter 20 of the book of Acts. But in this text, as you see right there, can we read that together if you're able and willing? The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, take courage. For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Did you hear that? So you must testify also in Rome. That bit is news to Paul. He thought he got to Jerusalem and then he's kind of getting ready to testify to the grace of God. But now he hears and Who told him that? It is the Lord. It is the Lord standing by Paul. As he's waiting in a a solitary confinement, waiting for trial, Jesus shows up to Paul at night and says, you know what, be of good cheer, take courage, do not be afraid, take courage, because as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, you must do so also in Rome. He's saying, okay, I'm going to show you where to go. You don't know where to go, but I am here with you. And so this zeal alone can get you there. The Christian version is this. Even many Christians can be misguided in their zeal to serve God. Even many Christians, in your you know, desire to defend certain somebody's cause and so on, we need to really ask, ask ourselves a question, but what if we were wrong? And how do we get away from that? Paul knew that religious zeal simply cannot get you there. Paul also saw that political zeal for law and order, in the case of the Roman Empire, simply cannot deliver what you truly desire in life. Paul experienced it, as I said, most painfully and poignantly as he met the resurrected Jesus on the road to Damascus. The same Paul we find in verse 11, which is part of last Sunday's sermon, is is that, that you must also testify in Rome. That was something new. Going to Rome was not yet known to Paul, and he says, I'm going to Jerusalem in Acts 20, 24. It is the Lord who was directing Paul's zeal as to what he must do and where he must go. Paul was zealous to testify about the Lord in Jerusalem or to the ends of the earth. And now Jesus says, be of good cheer, do not be afraid, I am with you. And I'm going to tell you what you must say, where you're going. I am with you, be not afraid, and I will guide you all the way home. Paul's zeal to serve the Lord needed to be informed by the resurrected Lord who stood by him and directed him as to how we will serve by testifying about him. You know the word that is used there to, in verse 11 as testify is the word the Greek word martyrsi, which from which we get the word martyrs or martyrdom. See, to testify about the Lord means to say, to speak truthfully and meaningfully about who God is in Jesus Christ. That is what it means to be a martyr, to be a witness. And as we know, as tradition has it, Paul met his earthly end by being martyred for the faith. See, vowing not to eat anything until they kill Paul did not happen. Did you know that? That didn't happen. In the same way that keeping the Roman candles lit forever by his political savvy and legal codes did not last. That Roman Empire did end. But testifying to the faithfulness of God of Israel in Jesus Christ lasted and is still lasting. Look around. Look around this sanctuary. What are you doing? You are testifying to the grace of God. You're testifying to the fact that God is alive, that Jesus is real. The same Jesus who who stood by Paul is standing by you and me right now as we worship in our vulnerability, in our transparency, in our fear, in our alone cells, Wherever you may be, Jesus is saying, you're not alone. I'm standing by you. You must testify about my grace, about me, about who Jesus is. We talked about Moses and Elijah earlier, so let me finish with the story about them. We find their story in the Gospel of Luke, the same writer who wrote this account of Paul's missionary travels. In Luke chapter 9, verse 28, we find that Jesus took Peter, James, and John to the mount to pray where he was transfigured. His face was filled with the glory of God and his clothes shining as dazzlingly white. Then appeared Moses and Elijah, and Luke told us that they talked to him about his departure. And the word there that's used there is, is the word is exodon, from which we get the word exodus. That means that Moses and Elijah, two primary, two kind of archetypal figures in the Old Testament, Moses, who is about the law, Elijah, about the prophets, law and the prophets, they came and talked to Jesus about his departure, the exodus, the new exodus that Jesus is going to bring about to new Israel called the church. And they now have this beautiful kind of a restoration of their identity and their reputation because it is in Jesus their, the goal of their zeal will meet. Friends, let's you and me not be like the Roman soldiers who are like, okay, we're going to find our zeal in the Roman Empire's lasting, eternal, kind of, you know, lasting kind of identity, or like the 40 men who secretly pr- plotting to bring about the end of someone else's life. No, that's not who we are. I teach um, every three semesters at Riverbend Maximum Security Prison. And that's a place where um, I learn the most about God, learn the most about my Savior and my own self, and my desperate need for God's grace. So I bring about 15 uh, valuable students, undergrads and master's students to uh, Maximum Security Prison. The last time I was on death row, and then, um, you know, joined by 15 or so students Inmates, so insiders and outsiders, and we learn together. And the course is called "God and Human Suffering in Christian Traditions." Every time I go there, I run into this group of men, uh, these brothers. uh, Some of whom are actually from Christ Press. Uh, There's a group called Men of Valor. Some of you are familiar with it. Men of Valor. It's a great ministry. Great ministry of really kind of you know meeting people where they are at and really opening up the word of God. And so I want to talk about the men of valor because they really are about finding their identity in Jesus and helping others to find their identity in Jesus. Right? And so men and women of valor, so true men and women of valor have these three things I would say. One is humility. One is the humility to say to the Lord, Lord. Maybe I am misguided without you in my zeal to serve you, so please let me know. So have that humility, but also have the courage to say, Lord, only you can actually redirect me. Only you can heal me and set me on a journey of healing others and redirecting others. So have the humility. True men and women of valor have the humility and courage, but not only that, but they have the confidence to say that I know whom I believed and I am convinced that he's able to guard until that day what I've been entrusted with. You see, friends, modernity, the story of modernity, you know, can be dated to, I don't know, let's say uh, Rene Descartes, who said, you know, I am doubting everything in my life, and the only thing I know for sure is that I know I exist. I think, therefore, I am. Ever since then, or even before that, humankind, humanity has been searching for certainty and knowing that it, This is this we know for sure. Look at, you know, many, many have said, okay, maybe science will deliver that for us. Maybe technology will give that for us. Has science delivered that for us? In some ways, yes, but in ultimately, no. Has technology done that for us? Not really. Have these political figures done that for us? These anthropologists, or you know, like philanthropists, have they done that for us? Not really. Every human system, every human figure will ultimately disappoint including the one standing in front of you, including all of us. So we need to turn our gaze and turn our eyes upon Jesus because it is he who said, zeal for thy house will consume me. He had a zeal for the house of the Lord, and that consumed him to such an extent that he was crucified for our sake and he was resurrected for the glory of God to demonstrate the love of God. Friends, we're about to come forward to receive the elements of the body broken and bloodshed called the Lord's Supper, and this is a meal that unites the Christian community, not only with one another, but with the risen Christ and the triune God. As you do so, may you really encounter the living Christ in such a way that you can say, Lord, may my zeal be directed to you, and in so doing, may you receive all the glory, joy, and honor. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you for your promises that are new every day. Thank you for binding us in Jesus. Thank you for reminding us that our zeal to serve must be directed in and through you. And help us to know that our identity is only secure as we find it in Christ. Lord, whatever our earthly journey, how long ever they may last, whether in middle school or elementary school or pre-K or having been retired for 10, 15 years, Lord, we know that our lives are in your hands. So we trust them into your care. And as we come to the table now, may you lift up our hearts to encounter the risen Christ. In your name we pray. Amen.